Good morning, Soma. Let's open with a word of prayer. Our Lord, our God, how awesome you are. We read of your power and might over the universe. Lord, we are so insignificant before your heavens and how much smaller we must be before you. We are undeserving of your kindness and generosity and your love. Your love is greater than all the heavens. Heavenly Father, we are so undeserving. We know that even the greatest things that we can imagine of you are just figments of what you truly are. Lord, we are so lost without you. Our sin and failure weigh us down. They hold us back. We fail to look to you. Lord, this morning, calm down. Be with us. Remind us so that we do not fall short. Let us not follow after our hearts, but to you and you only to open our hearts. God, give us wisdom to heed the words of your prophet Isaiah and to understand them. Give us discernment, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Last week, I was listening to a sermon at our sons and daughter-in-law's church. It's Lake Community Church down in Castaic. Um, very distracting because right behind the pastor are the windows that look down on the lake. It really is lake view, right? There's a helicopter flying by, and I'm paying attention to the helicopter, not listening to, to the sermon. <clears throat> but there was a fascinating reference in my notes in my Bible that just got my attention. Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees, Matthew 5.20, Matthew 5.20. And you know, the Pharisees were not one of Jesus' favorite people. Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And down there in the footnotes, it said, The Qumran texts, a set of ancient scrolls found in modern times, refer to the Pharisees ad, as seekers after smooth things because they accommodate and compromise the law to fit the realities of life. Such accommodation removed the awareness of the need for grace and dependence on God. Jesus restores the true nature of God's law as demanding total and radical holiness. Jesus demands a deeper obedience and not disregard of God's commands. The Pharisees wanted to smooth things over. Seeker of smooth things. Isaiah 30.10 Isaiah 30.10 actually uses this phrase. Listen. Who say to the seers, do not see? And to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. That is, they're telling the prophets to tell them lies. Do you know how an altar was to be made for God? If you make me an altar of stone, you will not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. 
Why make an altar of rough stones? Why would you do that? Because God made those stones that way. That was why it was important not to make smooth stones. You don't make an altar out of cut stone. Exodus 20, 25. Exodus 20, 25. Now this is Moses telling us what God told him. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. Why is that? If we make the rocks smooth so that they fit together nicely, we add something to what God has created. We are making it into something else. So it is with our faith. It is meant to be rough. And with our lives, difficulties and tribulations follow us all the days. It is the way God makes our lives, like the rock. We refer to God as our rock. Do we want God to be smooth, like the rock that fits comfortably into our lives? That's not the way it's meant to be. It's not the way God intends the rock to be. What do we say about God? God is our rock. How is it that God intends the rock to be? We should not be adding anything to Jesus. Jesus is as he means to be. We should not speak lies of who Jesus is to make him fit smoothly into our lives. Jesus is who he means to be. I thought about that a lot this week. I am loving our time in Isaiah. Isaiah has so much to tell us. Isaiah keeps pointing us back to Jesus and to God and all the blessings that comes from that. I had something else I wanted to tell you guys and um, I decided not to do it, so I've actually cut it out. But I'm going to do it to you guys anyway. Colleen and Riley have already heard this. That's my granddaughter, Aubrey. <laughs> She'll arrive in July. I'm not excited. <laughs> so today we're going from Isaiah 19. And we're going to do verses 1 through 15. Isaiah 19, 1 through 15. Today's passage tells of an oracle or a vision from the Lord through Isaiah against Egypt. Again, a song or a poem. Enough background. Let's go ahead and start. An oracle concerning Egypt. The Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. 
and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt them. Here in verse 1, the language used in chapter 19 is mostly symbolic. It doesn't refer to a certain historical event that we can tell. And the language used in chapter 20, which Bill's going to cover next week, I think, um, speaks more specifically, historically. And this is clearly an oracle against Egypt. The Lord will ride swiftly on the clouds against Egypt, and their false gods will shake. The will of the Egyptians will tremble in their chest. In verse 2. I will stir up Egyptians against Egyptians, and they will fight, each against another, and each against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. The Egyptians will be a divided peoples, battling against each other. Confusion and chaos reign over the land of Egypt. This, this is very difficult for the Egyptians what they're about to go through. And yet they do not follow after God. They keep turning away to their false idols, idols that they made with their own hands, hoping that those idols that they made with their own hands, out of stone and wood, dead things, would save them somehow. Verse 3. The spirit of the Egyptians within them will be emptied out, and I will confound their counsel, and they will inquire of the idols and the sorcerers and the mediums and the necromancers. Here in verse 3 we read, The Lord our God means to confuse and disrupt the lives of Egypt. But instead of turning to God, they turn to their own false idols. And they will pray to their idols and seek out their sorcerers and their mediums and necromancers. Those who love to speak to the dead. We know that God's people are admonished from having anything to do with dead things. And this is why. Verse 4. And I will give over to the Egyptians to the hand of a hard master, and a fierce king will rule over them, declares the Lord God of hosts. Handing over the Egyptians to a difficult and hard king, that's a very, very difficult curse. It's possible this is a reference to the Pharaoh of the Exodus or the line of corrupt and evil kings in the land of Egypt. We don't know. And now here it comes to something a little more specific. Verses 5 and 6. And the waters of the sea will be dried up, and the river will be dry and parched, and its canals will become foul, and the branches of Egypt's Nile will diminish and dry up. Reeds and rushes will rot away. I looked up a bit about the Nile River. The Nile River is the longest river on the planet. It's um, over 4,130 miles from the sea to its headwaters, which, by the way, is more than halfway across Africa, north to south. The Nile River Valley would flood annually, and the receding waters would leave a 
dark, rich layer of moist topsoil. And these conditions made farming and agriculture easy and the perfect vehicle for their ancient economy. All three of the great ancient civilizations arose in this way. Egypt on the Nile River, growing wheat and cotton. Babylon on the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, growing barley and linen. And China on the Yangtze River, growing rice and silk. And now God is going to disrupt the very thing that the Egyptians depend on for their comfortable and easy lives. The annual flood of the Nile River would continue until 1970. The year of the Aswan Dam was completed and created Lake Nassar on the Nile River. The Aswan covers the first cataract of the Nile, and for the next thousand miles of the Nile are six cataracts and deep canyons. One of those canyons is bigger than the Grand Canyon we have here, bigger and deeper. Above this is the city of Khartoum, where the Nile splits into two. The one going to the east is called the Blue Nile, and the one on the west is called the White Nile. Quite literally, they are called those colors because of the colors of the rock and the sediment that they're bringing down. The Blue Nile supports 80% of the water of the Nile River down below, and its source is Lake Tana in Ethiopia. The White Nile to the west continues south even further and begins at Lake No and Lake Victoria in Tanzania below Mount Kilimanjaro. By the way, the Nile River is about twice the distance to the east coast from here. You would have to drive to the east coast, turn around and come back, and that's how far, how long the Nile River is. The Egyptians depended on this. And what God is talking about here is a great drought where the river will not flood and will not give them sustenance that they are looking for. Verses 7 and 8. There will be bare places by the Nile, on the brink of the Nile, and all that is sown by the Nile will be parched and will be driven away and will be no more. The fishermen will mourn and lament. All who cast a hook in the Nile, they will languish, and they will languish who spread nets on the water. This disaster being cursed on the Egyptians is a terrible one. The lack of water will destroy the ability to grow food, and the lack of water also kills an important source of protein for the Egyptians and their diet with the loss of the fish. Verse 9. The workers in combed flax will be in despair, and the weavers of white cotton. These are the other important commodities that come from the fertile floodplains around the Nile River, flax and cotton. Loss of the ability to grow these products will also cause disruption of their economy and their culture. Those who are the, verse 10, those who are the pillars of the land will be crushed and all those who work for pay will be grieved. 
The impact of this economic loss will not just be to the poor and the working class, but it will reach to the highest people in the land, even to the court and the pharaoh. No one shall be spared because of this drought. Verses 11 and 12. The princes of Zoan are utterly foolish. The wisest counselors of Pharaoh will give stupid counsel. How can you say to Pharaoh, I am a son of the wise, a son of ancient kings? Verse 12, where then are your wise men? Let them tell you that they might know what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. The city of Zoan here is also known as the city of Tanis. If you know anything about Egyptology, you know that Tanis is actually the capital of ancient Egypt. It's the seat of power. The wisest men of Egypt cannot answer what God's purpose is for Egypt. God is punishing Egypt. There's a reference of the age of Hebron relative to Zoan. It's in Numbers 13.22. Numbers 13.22. So keep in mind, Moses is writing this down. Numbers 13.22. They went up to the Negeb and came to Hebron. Ahiman, Sheshai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were there. Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. There's also a reference of Moses and God's plagues against Zoan. Psalm 78, verses 12 and verse 43. Psalm 78, verse 12 and verse 43. Verse 12. In the sight of their fathers he performed wonders in the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan. And then down in verse 43. He performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the fields of Zoan. Where are Egypt's wise men? Why are they not helping? They fall here because they are an example of human pride. 1 Corinthians 1.20 Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? How often we hear that, the wisdom of the world. We think we understand the way things work. And then we're confronted with an example where things are not what we thought they were. And all of a sudden there's a new discovery, right? It's simply because we don't understand. Verses 13 and 14. The princes of Zoan have become fools and the princes of Memphis are deluded. Those who are the cornerstones of her tribes have made Egypt stagger. The Lord has mingled within her a spirit of confusion, and they will make Egypt stagger in all its deeds, as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. Here in verses 13 and 14, we see reference to Memphis. 
Memphis was the capital of Egypt before Tanis was. Tanis was a constructed city, artificially constructed to be a capital city. A little bit like Washington, D.C., okay? Washington, D.C. was not a city before the United States decided to make it a city. It's not a great port. It's not in an advantageous fork in the river or anything. It simply is a manufactured city that doesn't belong to any state because our country decided to make it that way. Tanis was a similar sort of a thing. It was artificially constructed to show the power and the might of the leaders of Egypt. This is a taunt, a sarcastic remark made against the kings of Egypt. Their leaders mislead the people of Egypt and have brought the nation low. God brings punishment to Egypt because of their pride. 1 Kings 4, 29 through 31. 1 Kings 4, 29 to 31. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all the men, wiser than Ethan the Ezraelite, and Heman, and Calcal, and Darda, the sons of Mahal, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. Egypt is confounded here by God because of their pride, because of their leaning on themselves. Verse 15, and there will be nothing for Egypt that head or tail, palm, branch, or reed may do. These oppressors of Judah are destroyed utterly and completely. God assures this. God is punishing those who oppress his people. And this is the end of the poem or the song here. We need to take care that we do not become like the Pharisees or become like the Egyptians. We're also admonished by Jesus to withhold from casting the first stone or the ones in the middle or the last stone. The amazing thing is Jesus loves us as we are like the rough rock. We need to love like Jesus does. Jesus is there still calling to us, holding out his hand, waiting for us. Jesus had to pay for our rebellion against God, our acting like the Egyptians, our acting like the Pharisees. <clears throat> Jesus had to pay for that rebellion, our sin, and our unfaithfulness. And Jesus' faithfulness takes away our guilt, and our sin is atoned for by Christ's death on the cross. Isaiah is pointing us back to God here. He's giving us a lesson. You want to be the rough rock, 
not the smooth one. Isaiah says, don't look at the Egyptians, look at Jesus. Isaiah is telling us to change the way we live in the world. He wants us to be more Christ-like. We become more Christ-like by looking to Jesus. And the more we look at Jesus, the more we become like him. God loves us all. I look at the chaos in the world today and how this message sounds so much like the world we live in now. And I think of how I fail daily in who I should be as a Christian. God knows I am not where I need to be. Not now. And I don't see that I ever will be that way while I'm here on earth. Again and again, I go before Jesus on my knees. I keep trying to fix my stone and make it smooth, right? I need to rely more on God, looking to God's mercy and love. I need that love that is beyond all comprehension or understanding. And I need God's power of forgiveness. And still God chooses us. God, our daddy, our daddy father, God's greatness will be there for all of us to see on the day of the Lord. And we will all witness his goodness, his greatness, and his splendor on that day. Let's pray. Almighty God, you are so great and we are so incredibly small. Lord, you have kept your words spoken to us by Isaiah and handed them down through all these years just for us to have down through all these ages you've held them and lord we've been unfaithful we've been trying to make isaiah's words smooth and you want us to hear the roughness in isaiah's words you continue to hold us in the palm of your hand you lovingly guide us and care for us heavenly father Hide your rough words in our hearts. We read the words of your prophet Isaiah. Write your words down deep inside of us. Give us the lessons we have to learn, and only from you. Guide us in your perfect path. Your plan of redemption is so perfect. Let us not try to smooth out your rock. Jesus, you died in our place to redeem us, to save us. You are so amazing. We love you. We bless you and honor you. We praise the name above all names, the name of Jesus. Amen.